Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. If you're new to Cornerstone, I'm one of the pastors here. And I am uh, very excited to get to, to open up God's word with you this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And this morning, we'll be looking at the rest of chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And I, I have been so looking forward to getting to this passage and getting to share this passage with you because I think in this passage, Paul gives us the key to how change is possible in our lives. Like, not superficial, I'm going to change my hairstyle or change my diet or things like that, but, but true heart change, change at the level of our character, at the level of our desires, our will. He's talking about change that actually makes us more like Jesus and that actually allows others to see Jesus more clearly in our words and actions. Not just sprinkling a little more Jesus into my life, my plans, but, but a change that reorients gradually, progressively, everything in our lives around him as king. So before I even get to the passage, let me ask you this. Do you want that kind of change? Like, do you want to be more like Jesus. Is that why you decided to follow Jesus, if you have decided to follow Jesus? Because I will tell you right now, that's what Jesus wants for you. Not just to take you to heaven when you die, not just to rescue you from hell, rescue you from punishment, but to transform you to be like him. Even though that path, that path of true change in that way is always hard. I mean, in one sense, as you think about it, change is always hard. But the type of change that we're talking about, not just superficial, I'm going to change my diet or my exercise routine, but true heart change is especially hard because, in fact, it's not something that we can do for ourselves. The kind of change that we most desperately need in our life and our relationships, we are powerless to effect. Honestly, guys, that is one of the most bang my head against the wall frustrating things about being a pastor. The thing I want most for you, I cannot make happen. I go home. Maybe you go home at the end of the day of work and you go, okay, I got this, this, and this done. I go home at the end of the day and go, Man, I really want people's hearts to change, but I can't make it, I can't checkbox that one. But the thing that keeps me going, that keeps us going, is that what is impossible for us is not impossible for God. Amen? So here's what I want to ask you to do. Before we even get to our passage, I'm going to ask, I'm going to give you about 20 seconds or so to yourself. I'm going to ask you prayerfully consider one area of your life where change is needed. I mean, the reality is, this side of eternity, there's no area of our life where we don't need to continue to grow and change. But what I've found is the best way to actually pursue change is not with a shotgun approach, but by asking prayerfully, God, would you show me one area to focus on in dependence upon you and seek change there as I continue to follow you? Maybe you know already where that issue is. That's what brought you here today. But what I'm gonna say is, these next 20 seconds, we're just going to have some time quiet for yourself. Maybe you know what it is, maybe not, but talk to God about it right now, okay? The next 20, 30 seconds are yours, 
And then we'll turn to the passage. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to start looking at verse 7, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Eshers that would love to put one in your hand. But once you find your place, if you are able, I would ask you, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 7. Now... If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father in heaven, would you enable us? In what we just read, would you enable these truths to seek deep in your heart? Holy Spirit, would you do the work which only you can do to take the life-changing truths of Scripture and change our lives with them? I ask this by your grace. Amen. You can take a seat. True change. Heart change. I said this passage gives us the key to how that happens. And I hope you see it right there in the end in verse 18. That as we behold, I missed it. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But if you were paying attention as I read it, this word glory is all over this passage. Here's what I read right before that. Glory, 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 glory. It comes up 12 times in this passage. Actually, in Greek, there's an extra one. There's a 13th one that doesn't come out in our English translations. 13 times in 12 verses. I think Paul might be trying to emphasize it. Don't you? 
Paul keeps drawing a comparison between his ministry in the old, New Covenant and the ministry of Moses in the Old Covenant. He says over and over again, there was glory in the Old Covenant ministry of Moses, but there is greater glory in the New Covenant ministry of Paul and, by extension, us. There's greater glory displayed in the New Covenant. There is greater ability of God's people to see that glory and even to be transformed by that glory. But if this idea of the glory of God is the key to our transformation, what is it? I mean, think about it. The word glory is one of those Bible words that, that, that if you don't have to spend too much time in the Bible to get pretty familiar with it. We read it a lot. We say it a lot. We pray it. We sing it. But what is it? And how does it change us? That's what we're going to be looking at. You saw a slide I moved past too quickly before. The three main questions we're going to look at this morning are these. How does God change us? What does he use to change us? And what role do we have in this process? And hopefully you see already from this passage, God changes us by showing us his glory. And now we're asking the question, what is his glory? How do we know if we've seen it or not? Well, I did some study this, this week on that word glory to find out what it means when it's used in Scripture. And here's what I found. The word glory can mean the worth or value or honor of something or someone. It can refer to someone's greatness, their, their magnitude, the, the immense size of something. It can refer to someone who is rich. They are glorious because they have great possessions. The most basic meaning of the Hebrew root is heavy, like literally to weigh a lot. I mean, think about this. As a matter of fact, ancient kings, one of the ways that they would show their glory was with their belly, by being fat. Think about it. In an agrarian society where people have to grow their food, Kings would show their power by the fact that not only did they not have to work in the fields, they had other people who could do that for them, but they could meet, eat as much and as rich of foods as they wanted, resulting in glory. Their fatness was their glory. Now, obviously, unless we get absurd with this, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's not talking about him literally being overweight, but it does refer to the, the, the magnitude, the immense, immeasurable greatness of who God is. And think about it in this way. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The vastness of the heavens speaks to the vastness, the immenseness of who our God is. In a similar way, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of the glory of the Lord, and there's these beings called seraphim that are constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, then they say, the whole earth is full of his glory, that, that all of creation exists as a tangible, visible expression of just how great our God is. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The earth is full of the glory of God. 
But as a matter of fact, most often when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's not just talking in that general all creation sense, but referring to the way that God manifests his presence, makes his presence known to particular people in particular places in particular times in a very concentrated, intense way. It's kind of like what Billy was reading from Psalm 29 earlier. Often God's glory appears as, like in the stories of the Exodus, this pillar of fire and cloud that led the people in the wilderness. The way that the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness or the dedication of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, it would be filled with this blinding, brilliant light, smoke, fire, intensity, the glory of God. It all indicated that this God who fills all of heaven and earth is in some way here now. One of the most amazing places where God manifests his glory in this way is it in Exodus chapter 19, after he's brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then he comes to Mount Sinai. And here's what it says. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet with God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Can you imagine just for a moment what it would have been like to be there? I bet it would have been terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. But in many ways, all of that smoke and intensity on the mountain in large part served to shield the people from the even even greater glory of God that lay within because it wasn't safe for them to see that. Look what God says right after this, very next verse. The Lord God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Don't come into this whole big fiery smoky mountain thing because you cannot see me on the inside without being destroyed. The reality we see here is that our sin, our rebellion against God has corrupted and defiled us to the point where on our own, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are not fit for God's presence. We cannot bear to see his glory without being destroyed by it. I've often heard it said that God is so holy that he cannot be around sin. You heard that before? Gosh, I really don't like that because to me it makes God sound like a germaphobe. Like, I am so clean, like, just stay away from me with your grossness. That's not who our God is. It's, you have to flip it around. God is so holy, not because that sin can't be around him, but that sinful people cannot be around God 
without the sheer magnitude of his glory vaporizing them. The glory of God obliterates that which is opposed to it. And here's the crazy part. God calls Moses to come up to the mountain, to come into the thick darkness where God was and see his glory. How is that possible? I mean, Moses was a sinful man just like everybody else. We know that from his past. But here's the difference. God chose Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. God chose Moses, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, to be the minister of his covenant with the people of Israel. Moses was able to draw near to the glory of God closer than anyone else solely because of God's gracious call on his life. That's it. The only reason that he was not destroyed by the glory of God when anyone else would be was because of the sovereign grace of God saying, come near. So Moses came near. Here's the crazy part, though. Moses goes up. He's in this glory of God. He's there for 40 days. And then after the whole thing with the golden calf and the people break the covenant, he goes back up for 40 more days. And at some point during those 80 days in the presence of God, even with as brilliant as that was, Moses starts to go, I feel like there's something more. I feel like there's still something that I'm not, I'm still not seeing the full picture of who God is. And so he says this in Exodus 33. He says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft, like a, a crack, if you will, a little crevice in the rock. And I will cover you with my own hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. God says, you've been closer than anyone else to my glory. You know there's more. You want to see it. I'm going to show you even more than what you've seen so far. But you can't see the full picture because no one will see me and live. And so God protects Moses with his own hand, causes his glory to pass by, and then he shows Moses, as it were, the, the afterglow of his glory. It's like when you look at the sky in the west right after the sun has dipped below the horizon, it's still bright and brilliant and glorious, but there's not the blinding, burning ball of gas that like burns your eyes, right? Still brilliant, still glorious, and it was as much as Moses could handle. And look at the effect that it has on Moses. We're getting close to where we're going with this passage. Exodus 34, after all this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone 
because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. The people recognize it's not safe for us to even be near this dude with the glowing face. Stay away. But look what happens next. Verse 31. Moses calls to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking that to them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in to, before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the shining face of Moses. And Moses would then put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. Do you see the pattern here of what they're talking about? Moses comes down. His face is radiating something of the very glory of God that he had seen in a way that the people recognized even that wasn't safe for them to be too close to. So Moses puts a veil on his face. But when he would go back in to talk with the Lord, he would remove the veil, then come back out with his face uncovered to speak to the people what God had said to him. Then he would put the veil back on until he went back in. You see that? The Israelites, therefore, would only get short glimpses of the glory of God on Moses' face because that's all that they could endure in their hard-hearted state. That's Paul's point when he says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, this ministry of death of Moses, it came with glory, but the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. It wasn't safe for them to do that. So he says in verse 12, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the people might not gaze at what they could not gaze at. Does that make sense? Because it wasn't safe for them. But at the same time, I also highlighted in that verse this phrase that comes up in both places. This, this glory which was being brought to an end. That's actually not a very good translation. Maybe some of your translations will even say that the glory of Moses' face was fading. And, and that's actually even further off the mark. If we look at this and say that the glory on Moses' face was fading, it almost makes Moses appear to be like, like a glow-in-the-dark toy. You know, those ones where you got to hold it up to the light to charge it up, and then it'll glow for a little while, but it'll fade, and then you got to recharge it again. And it makes this almost a story of how Moses needed to have his face regularly recharged by going in to talk with God. Well, then why does he wear the veil? And some people would say, well, it's almost like this dishonest thing that Moses was doing. Like, he didn't want the people to see that the glory didn't last. He's like the, the Wizard of Oz. Don't see anything behind the curtain. But the problem with that interpretation is that Nowhere in Exodus do we see an indication that the glory on Moses' face faded. Matter of fact, many rabbis believe that Moses' face continued to radiate the glory of God for the rest of his life. So in that way, Moses didn't wear a veil to protect his reputation. He wore the veil to protect the people. In their hard-hearted state, they could not bear even that indirect encounter with the glory of God in anything more than infrequent, short spurts. And so he wore the veil to protect them. The best way probably to translate this phrase of what was being brought to an end 
is that it was being rendered ineffective. I know it makes it for a choppy English translation, but go with me for a second. That word rendered ineffective, that's actually the way that this word is used pretty much everywhere else that Paul uses it in the New Testament. The point of it is this. What was being rendered ineffective, not accomplishing its effect, was the glory of God on the face of Moses. Why was the glory of God on the face of Moses rendered ineffective? Because the effect of that glory would have been the destruction of the people had they been able to look at it for long. Okay, so how was the glory rendered ineffective? By the veil, right? The veil stopped the people from looking at the outcome, which would have been their destruction, had they been able to look for long at the glory on Moses' face. The veil Moses wore, therefore, was a symbol both of condemnation and mercy. On the one hand, it was a sign of condemnation because every time the people of Israel saw Moses walking around with this veil, they went, that's right. Our hearts, our sin makes it where we cannot stand that. But it was also a sign of mercy because it protected the people from that which they were not able to bear. It allowed Moses to still minister to them without putting them in danger. Paul goes further and he says that while the veil that Moses wore was a literal physical veil over his face, it was actually pointing to that deeper heart reality. A reality that he says continued to that day in the hearts of the Jewish people who did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, Their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. We'll talk more about that reality of veils on people's hearts next week. But to sum up where we've been so far, let me show you this. What we learn about the glory of God, we're getting to transformation, but first we have to talk about destruction. The glory of God plus sinful people equals their destruction unless, like in the case of Moses, God graciously calls and enables someone to draw near. God told Moses, come near. Moses comes near, and not only is he not destroyed by the glory of God, but when he comes back down from the mountain, people go, oh my gosh, he is radiating that glory too. Not only was he not destroyed by God's glory, he was transformed by it. So we have to change our equation a little bit. We have to say it like this. The glory of God plus sinful people equals either their destruction or their transformation by the grace of God. One of the two. But at this point in the story, in Exodus 34, Moses is the only one who got to experience transformation by God's glory. But Paul's point in this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 is that all of that has changed now. That through the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 18, we all with unveiled faces can behold the glory of God and be transformed by it. How is that possible? Look at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. He says this, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
He says almost in the same way that when Moses would go in to talk with the Lord, he would take the veil off. He says that's almost symbolic of what it's like when someone turns in faith in Jesus Christ as the, what does it say? The only one who can remove that veil. When someone comes in faith, believing that Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection has made it possible for this hard, covered heart to be changed, something happens. They are made able to see glory that they could not see before. That was not safe for them to see before. Their hearts are, as it were, unveiled by the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 17. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Who's the Lord? The Lord is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, that right there, verse 17, that is one of those verses that's just made for Twitter. It's just made to put on your Instagram feed with a cool sunset picture behind it. Man, in a very, like, you, like you've seen as we walked through this, in a rather complex passage, this one verse is so simple and concise and so quotable. But you know what happens then? Because out of everything else, it's the most quotable. People say, okay, I'm going to take everything else away and just take this. I'm going to take 2 Corinthians 3.17 and treat it like my own personal Mad Libs. Whatever I want to be freed for, from, I'll just plug into this verse dry, stodgy religion of my parents, the Spirit frees me from that to be able to encounter God the way that I want to. Wait, all this laborious studying language and culture and the way these... No, no, the Spirit frees me from having to do hard Bible study. Now what I can do is just believe that my impressions of Scripture are divinely inspired because I'm free. That may sound harsh, but I need to be harsh because we have abused this verse. Maybe not you personally, but the church in America especially has abused this verse. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 17 on its own does not specify what we're freed from. That's the problem. We pull it out on its own. We plug what we want into it. But like we've done for the last 30 minutes or so, if we keep verse 17 in this passage and look at it in conjunction with the verses that come right before it and right after it, it becomes very clear what the Holy Spirit frees us from. Do you see it there? He frees us from the veil that covered our eyes to keep us from seeing the glory of God. The veil that the Israelites needed to protect them from being destroyed by God's glory. The veil which Paul says symbolizes our hard hearts, which the old covenant, as glorious as it was, and as much as it pointed to our need for new hearts, could not affect new hearts in us. Now the Spirit does that. He changes our hearts. He gives us new hearts. He removes the veil. He frees us to see the glory of God. And then that's why he says in verse 18, we all with our faces unveiled before it was only Moses who could remove the veil to go, to go in and talk with the Lord. But now, not just Paul, not just the super apostles, we all can behold the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, we're transformed by it. Not all at once, he says, 
but from one degree of glory to another, progressively over time. This is how true change in our life happens. Not superficial, change your haircut, change your diet, change what time you wake up in the morning, but true change at the level of our heart, our character, our will. It only happens through an encounter with the glory of the living God with a heart enabled by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? So now, having taken this couple thousand year detour through Moses and back now to where we are, think back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Think back to that area of your life that you identified in your, that needs to change. And plug this verse into that. Understand, the change that you need, whether it's in your marriage, whether you're struggling with issues of addiction, whether you just realize you've gotten into patterns of gluttony or laziness or overworking, whether you realize you have no control over your anger, you had a big blow-up fight on the drive-in to church this morning. The change that you need is not just anger management strategies. You need an encounter with the glory of the living God to rewire you from the heart. Now, you might be thinking, well, darn, I was really hoping you'd give me like three tips to be a better friend. I was really looking for some, some practical advice of things that I can do. And I would say that, my friends, is our problem. We look for superficial fixes to what are really deeper issues. What we need is heart change. What we need is to become more like God. And that only happens as we see his glory. But here's the question I have. If God changes us as he shows us his glory, then where do we go to see it? Where do we go to see the glory of God? On a mountain? When you get the beach all to yourself early in the morning and just get to you look through telescopes, see the glory of the heavens. I mean, we did talk in the, in the beginning about how, yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yeah, the earth is full of his glory. But that's not where we go to see the glory that truly changes us. For to see that kind of glory, we actually have to, I have to cheat a little bit. I have to pull another passage that we're going to look at next week because it all kind of streams together. Go with me if you will, if you have your Bibles. Look at verses four, and, four through six of chapter four, right after this. Look what he says. There's a lot more we'll come back to. Let me just hit on these two phrases. He says, the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, at the end, he says, the same God who in the beginning said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we, do we go to see the glory that transforms us? In the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, hold on. I think it's been, last I checked, it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus was physically here on earth. So I get how like the 12 apostles and the people around him could see his face literally. Even though most of the people that saw Jesus' face wanted nothing to do with him. But besides that, I mean, we know that like Paul had some visions of the glory of Jesus, but we don't. So how do we look at the face of Jesus? 
Well, hold on a second, because bring with us chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, we all with our faces unveiled can see the glory of God. He's writing to a group of people in Corinth who never saw Jesus face to face and telling them, you can see the glory of God. So he must be talking about something more than literally physically looking at Jesus' face, having like a picture on the wall and praying to it or something like that. What is he talking about? The clue's back there in verse 4. Where do we see the face of Jesus? Where do we get the light of his glory? In the gospel. In the gospel. In the good news about Jesus. This is where we see his glory. Where do we find the good news about Jesus? Where do we hear the good news about Jesus? Well, we find that in the Bible. And in particular, in the writings of the New Testament. We, we have those four gospel accounts, those eyewitness accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We have the letters written by the apostle of Jesus, like 2 Corinthians, that explain for us the implications of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's here. Understand this, guys. If you want true change in your life, not just superficial change, not just how you want your spouse to change, but if you want change, it is found here in the words of this book. Not on a mountain somewhere. Not by somehow lapsing into some semi-conscious transcendental meditative states. But it is in the careful, consistent lingering look at the glory of Jesus as revealed in the gospel. It is here that we see his face. It is here that we behold his glory. And it is through this that the Holy Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to another to be like who we see in this book. Understand this. Beholding Jesus in the gospel is the key to becoming like Jesus. Beholding Jesus in the gospel is the key to becoming like him. Never underestimate the ability of the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to reveal the glory of God so that he might transform the people of God to be like the Son of God. I got it right. Let me try that one more time. Never underestimate the ability of the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to reveal the glory of God so that we, the people of God, might be transformed to be like the Son of God. That's what I want you to get from this. So back to our three questions we talked about at the beginning. How does God change us? He changes us by showing us his glory. What does he use to change us? He uses the gospel of Jesus Christ. What role do we have in this process? We have the responsibility to behold his glory in the gospel as the Spirit enables us. In many ways, I would say our role in the process of transformation is kind of like that of a sunflower. Think about this. Everything that a sunflower needs to grow comes either from the energy of the sun or from the water and nutrients in the soil. How much of that does the sunflower control? None of it. 
Everything it needs to grow, it can't do for itself. It must receive it. Here's the crazy part. God designed the sunflower with this ability to track with the sun across the sky. That's why we call it a sunflower. God designed this thing to soak up as much as possible the life-giving energy of the sun by tracking with it across the sky. Not because it makes itself grow, but because that's how it acts as what it needs to grow. Does that make sense? In the same way, we can't change our hearts, but the Spirit can, and he tells us what he uses to do it. He uses the Word of God. And so, by our faithful, regular, looking, and lingering in the Word of God, we're seeking to be like the sunflower. To as much as possible expose ourselves to the life-giving power that the Spirit uses through the Word to transform us. And it's not just, the takeaway from this is not just have better quiet times, because this lingering before God's Word is not just something that we do alone. Remember, Paul said in verse 18, we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. Just as it's no longer just a Moses and God thing, understand, it is also not just a you and God thing. This is why fellowship is so important. You on your own will not see all of the glory of God that is to be seen in the pages of Scripture. And, get this, you will not see it all clearly. I don't know if I haven't done an official study on this, but I would say there's a common trait in basically every major cult and heretical group. And it tends to start with one person off on their own studying the Bible by themselves and arriving at really funky conclusions and no one being around to go, no, you shouldn't look at it that way. You heard the phrase, many hands make light work. You can get more done with more people. Well, I would say in this case, the saying is, many eyes can see more glory and see it more clearly. This is why we spend time in God's word together, just like we're doing right now. We share what we learn, what we see in God's word. We correct each other when we misunderstand something in God's word. We talk to God in prayer. We praise him for what he shows us of himself in his word. We ask him for help to understand him more through his word. We do it in large settings like this. We do it in smaller settings as families, as community groups, as youth ministries. And we do it all not just because they're good ways to like change our hairstyle, but because so that we might behold the glory of God together and thereby be transformed together. So think about your life. How much time do you spend soaking in the sun of God's word? Are you like that sunflower, tracking the sun across the sky to get everything you can? Or are you more like one of those sickly houseplants that never sees the light of day? What if instead of soaking in God's word, you're actually instead soaking up things that are actually detrimental to your life in Christ? Understand, you cannot coddle habitual sin in your life and expect to see much of the glory of God. Look at the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. Where did I put my clicker? The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. I love the way that this passage basically shows us that it's almost like, like there's two sides of the same coin. There's a reciprocal relationship between laying aside our sin and looking to Jesus. Do you see that there? We repent of sin, we turn from it so that we might turn more fully to see Jesus. And as we turn more fully our eyes to Jesus, we are enabled to see our sin with more clarity so that we might turn from our sin to fix our eyes more on Jesus. Do you see how that works? That's how the Holy Spirit transforms us. So know this. If you're not just playing at this Christian thing, if what you really want is transformation through the glory of Jesus, and there's a pet sin in your life that you hide and protect and pull out every once in a while to play with, it will have to go. The glory of Jesus Christ will not tolerate it. And you will not be able to have it both ways. Either you'll get to the point of saying, forget it, I don't want Jesus, I want my sin to your own destruction. Or the sheer intensity of the glory of Jesus will burn out the desire for that sin in your heart. And you will gladly lay it down to have more of him. One or the other will happen. Some of you might still be thinking and going, okay, so all of that, all that glory stuff and Moses stuff and everything, the takeaway for the problems in my life, the problems in my marriage, the stuff going on in my life is you just want me to read the Bible? I don't just want you to read the Bible. I want you to read the Bible in faith, believing that you will actually encounter the glory of God there. That the Holy Spirit will cause you to see what you could not see on your own. Not some hidden meaning behind the words on the page, but the life-giving power that the Spirit uses with the words on the page. I love the way the Apostle John says, the whole reason I wrote my gospel is this. He says, I could have showed you so many other things that Jesus did, but the things I wrote down were for this purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you might find life in his name. There is life in the name of Jesus. There is glory in the face of Jesus revealed in the gospel. Are you experiencing it? If you're a follower of Jesus, if the veil truly has been removed from your heart and your eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, Keep looking to Jesus in the gospel, and I promise you this. You will not remain the same. You cannot truly experience the glory of God and stay the same. You won't change overnight, but you will gradually, from one degree of glory to another, begin to radiate what Jesus is like to those around you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, well, actually, my encouragement to you is exactly the same. Look to Jesus in the gospel. Ask God to give you eyes to see his glory. All true change begins there. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the work we needed to do this morning. Lord, we're, we're foreign to concepts like glory and intensity and, and you being so big and great that you'll destroy us just by the hugeness of who you are. We like to have you cuddly. We like to have you approachable. And in some ways, we, we see your approachability through Christ in the new covenant. But may we not forget that the one that we approach boldly is the God of glory. May we not approach you flippantly. May we not approach you as spoiled children. But instead, may we approach you humbly, giving a vision of the fullness of who you are. And then would you be faithful, Holy Spirit, to make us more like your son. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.